you know, everybody nowadays just wants immediate results, but you spent a lot of time getting to where you are in, um, in recovery. And I think take the time to recover for yourself. That patience piece, I had to really work on my patience because I was not a patient person. Is there anyone out there? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey pod- podcast here at the Plugged In Media Network studio. Uh, I got Dave behind the curtain pulling all the levers, making us sound less stupid, hopefully. Um, un- unfortunately today I'm the only guy in the studio. All my, um, usual co-hosts are busy with clients. So I get to run solo and I embarrass us too much. Um, yeah, and I'm Rick. So today on the episode, we have, uh, Lauren Healy and Jamie Francis. I stumbled across their social medias and was really drawn to them because they were kind of doing the same thing i think that we set out to try now is just sharing our stories so that people know that they're uh they're not alone and and there's some there's others like them out there and i think a lot of uh isolation can come from thinking you're by yourself so without uh without too much further ado i would like to introduce miss miss lauren hello hi how are you good yeah and uh and and her and her co jamie Francis. Hello. Hi. So, um, yeah, we kind of briefly talked and got each other up to speed a bit on what we do, but, uh, maybe one of you would like to start with kind of telling your story and your journey into or around in one of your cases, uh, recovery and substance abuse. Sure. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Francis. I am the child of an alcoholic and the wife of an alcoholic. Um, So at about 15 years old, my dad sat me down and told me he was headed to a recovery center. And at the time, I literally had no idea what that meant. I thought alcoholism was reserved for homeless people living under a bridge. Um, I I didn't realize that it was like white collar. You know, my dad had an expense account. He wore a suit every day. He went to Flames games and had fancy parties. And I just thought he, that was, that was normal. That was just part of life. Um, So when he told me he was going to a treatment center, I was like, okay, I mean, that's, it seems, it seems odd because I don't think you're an alcoholic. And he explained to me that it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks because to the rest of the world, he might not have appeared to be an alcoholic. He held it together. He had a job. He had a nice house. He had a family that was intact. Um, but he he personally was struggling with alcohol. And so he went away for, I don't know, like 18 days or something, not a very long time. And he came home and he never drank again. And so that's that was the story that I had in my head about alcoholism is that you go to recovery, bing, bang, boom, done. You never drink again. You never think about it again. And you, you carry on with life. And my dad is still sober today and he hasn't drank and he's never relapsed. 
And that, that is truly what I believed alcoholism and recovery looked like. And I know now that I'm married to an alcoholic, that that's not everybody's story, that there is um, quite a few steps forward and quite a few steps back in the recovery process. But uh, so fast forward a few years and I met my husband and we were both um, young. We were in our 20s. And he worked out of town. So he, when he came back to town, it was like the big party. And we would have a great time for the couple of weeks that he was home. And then he would go away again. And everything seemed normal. I thought people in their 20s drank a lot. And that's just how life was. And then, um, you know, we started to get married or we got married, started to have a family. And it was like, okay, this is kind of annoying. Why aren't you coming home for supper? And he no longer worked out of town and his drinking was happening more like, you know, after work or at lunchtime. And, and once again, it was more of a white collar alcoholism where I'm like, well, he still has a job and a wife and a house and all the things that don't fill or don't suit my description of what alcoholism is. So he can't possibly be an alcoholic. And, um, then one day he said that he was, and I was pregnant at the time with our first child. And I was like, Oh, okay. I guess like go to the same recovery center that my dad went to. I've been down this road. You'll go to recovery and then we'll just never have to think about this again. It's going to be perfect. Our life will just carry on as is. And he did that. And for a couple of years, that's how it was. Like it just seemed normal and everything was back on track. And then that little feeling inside of my gut happened. And I was like, things just don't seem right. There's all these clues and things that just feel like he's not telling me the full truth. And then it all kind of came to light that, um, he was drinking and he was drinking behind my back. And sometimes that was socially. And sometimes that was at home with nobody watching. It was after I went to bed or after the kids went to bed and it was a real, betrayal like it felt like like a very aggressive blow like a punch in the gut because I felt like alcohol was his mistress like I felt such a deep sense of betrayal that I um wasn't really prepared for because like I said my dad's story was that you went to recovery and you never drank again so this relapse stuff was brand new to me and I was angry I was really angry because uh, a lot of it took him out. Like it, it took him out in the evenings. He would kind of shoot me off to bed. And in hindsight, it all makes sense. He would kind of shoot me off to bed so that he could do his drinking while everybody was asleep. And then he wasn't present the next day. Like he wasn't available. He was hung over, secretly hung over for a lot of life's major events. And like the little things like getting the kids up and getting breakfast in them. And, you know, and he was always tired and, and, just so much resentment and anger built over that time period. And then he went to recovery again. And anyways, this, this isn't a podcast about his story. This is about me, but what, what I felt in all of those moments was just such a desperation, such despair. I felt completely hopeless. And like, I, it wasn't my story to tell. So I couldn't tell anybody. I um, had convinced myself that, if I just kept up the facade of the perfect family that nobody would know, I mean, this all started for us nine and a half years ago. And I would say I've only spoken openly about it in the last couple of years. And even to my closest friends, they, they had no idea that he was struggling with alcohol. And um, for me, I think that it just was such a insanely lonely 
period of my life that I hope that nobody else has to go through something like that alone because you're not alone. As soon as I started telling people, I was literally getting DMs from like ex coworkers and people that I've met one time that are like, Hey girl, exact same situation. I think my husband drinks too much. I think this, I think this. And I'm like, see, the whole world is just keeping this a deep, dark secret. And it's just, our secrets keep us sick. And if more people were just open to sharing their story, I think that that loneliness maybe would subside or people would know who they can turn to, who's been down this road, who's been through this journey, who's had that anger, that resentment, who's tried everything to, you know, control it, who's completely abandoned who they were so that they could become this other person to try to solve a a problem that's not theirs. And that's, that's ultimately what I did is that after his first relapse, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to step in. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to hide all the alcohol. I'm going to search the house 20 times a day. I'm going to dump anything that I find. I'm going to keep him on a super tight leash. Maybe I'll take away all of his cards because that that'll prevent him from getting access to alcohol. I'm going to watch the credit card statement like a hawk. I'm going to do all this stuff. But ultimately, I literally wasted my life trying to control something that was completely out of control. And I look back on it and I'm like, it's so insane that I could have spent my time doing anything else, anything else. If he wanted to drink, he was finding a way to drink. And there was nothing I could do to change that. And that realization was like a huge wake up call for me. So I started to go to Al-Anon meetings because I felt hopeless. Like I felt like my life was unraveling and I didn't know how to control it. I had tried everything and it wasn't working. And I showed up to an Al-Anon meeting in, and, um, I, sh- I, I'll be full disclosure. I went to an Al-Anon meeting to learn how I could control my husband, how I could control his drinking, how I could prevent it from happening again. And when I got there, that's the last thing that they wanted to talk about. And I was like, okay, ladies, come on, like spill the tea. How many meetings do I got to go to before somebody just fills me in and gives me the deets on how I can control him. And they were like, well, that's not what this is for. This is a program for like yourself. And I was like, Mm, BS. Like everybody in this room is here because they're trying to control their addict. I know that. Like, don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. But as I continue to recover, I realized like maybe I had some problems too. Maybe his alcoholism was his and he had to manage that. But maybe my like controlling behavior, maybe my anger, maybe my resentment wasn't serving me either. And maybe it was time for me to do a little work around that. And, um, so I've been going to Al-Anon meetings, I think for six ish years. And I, I think that they were the one thing that got me out of some of the darkest moments of my life. And I think everybody deserves that, but they are so intimidating. And I think that a lot of people are scared to go to a meeting and, and that's okay. But opening up the conversation might help somebody get there or help somebody talk to somebody who's been to a meeting or talk to somebody who's in the same situation so that they don't feel that loneliness and that despair and that all of the negative feelings that come with it. Yeah, that's remarkable, your journey. Um, And very relatable because that, you know, you're, you're basically telling my story as well as all my partners here. Like we were all 
you know, at least six figure jobs living in, you know, all the toys going on beach vacations, like, and, uh, none of us really recognized early enough, you know, before we really burnt it to the ground, what we were dealing with, because just like you said, you know, I'm not homeless. I'm not, you know, I, I own a construction company. I manage 37 guys in the field. You know, there's all of these, we're all patch guys. Um, that formed this organization so you know we're, we we all made good money we were successful in life and and it was uh it wasn't it seemed normal because we also surrounded ourselves with individuals that did the same thing um you know it's one of the beauties of living in alberta is you, you find a crew and you can roll with them days on or days off it doesn't matter and uh it, and it's it's exactly that right is is the unmanageability that it becomes but if and that was primarily the principle behind us starting this whole thing was if we can share our stories maybe some guys can recognize a bit of our story in their lives before it gets to the point that you know wives are leaving and guys are trying to kill themselves and we had to declare bankruptcy and lose our kids and lose our house and um so I can absolutely relate and, and uh, interesting point for us at OCJ is we, we field a lot of uh, people reaching out for help and support like a lot. And I both are spouses and, uh, and a lot of times that, you know, the, the husband or wife or, or the significant other, um, they're not, either ready to do anything about it or willing to. So there's a lot of really awkward conversations that we have to have with people that's, you know, they, they call us up and like, you need to help my husband. And my first question is always the same. Well, does, does he want help? Does he recognize that he needs it yet? Cause if, if the answer is yes, then cool. Get him to give me a call. And we got his back. If the answer is no, let's focus on you. You know, what can we do to help you? Yeah. Because there's no, you can't, you know, you can't love somebody enough to get them to change unless they're ready to change. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think that's uh, bang on. Amazing story. Thank you. Um, I'm Lauren Healy and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I've been recover, in recovery for two years. And I came from, well, I was born and raised in a small town, Thunder Bay, Ontario. <laughs> so, but I didn't, um, I didn't grow up with a lot of trauma. I ha actually had a beautiful childhood and uh, very loving parents. My um, father was a construction company owner and my mother was a stay-at-home mom, but she was a huge entertainer. So my parents were very social and the wine was always flowing and there's dinner parties and all these um, different events. So um, that was normal. That was my normal. I didn't really know a difference between like alcohol being a drug and, you know, maybe I didn't pay attention to the drug and alcohol portion in school, which was quite small. But um, yeah, I, I didn't, I was afraid to do drugs, but I wasn't afraid to drink, if that makes sense. So um, I was afraid because my parents were, they were just drinkers um, in a very healthy, like, I guess, environment, very social and very, what seemed to be normal. Um, and then, so I started drinking, I think for the first time at 14, 
you know, the good old Mickey's of Silent Sam in the, in the park <laughs> with my friends and just got, you know, really, really annihilated, which made us all sick. But I don't think I drank um, that much. I was in competitive swimming after that. Um, so I was away every weekend or at a meet at home. And then I trained twice a day. So I didn't really have time. My mom kind of kept me, you know, busy. So, um, fast forward, I went to, I quit swimming just before nationals, obviously, because I wasn't a good regulator of my emotions and had a temper tantrum. So, because, because my mom was so loving and so, um, I think maybe it's not too much love. I can't say that, but, um, we didn't learn the hard way or to cope in a great way with our emotions, it was always kind of getting what we wanted. So, um, you know, when it came to anything, I would just shut down. So I'd shut down. I was a, a very quiet person as well. So I would push all my emotions down and push them down. And I wasn't vocal unless I drank. <laughs> so this is like my kind of outlet. Um, so I went away to school in London, Ontario, um, to study fashion, um, which, which ended up to be a hobby. I did nothing with it. <laughs> and then I moved out, um, here and worked in the bar industry. Um, so after I was in school and we partied like rock stars. So I worked for one of the major, I guess, bars, country bars, um, here in Calgary. And yeah, we just partied like crazy and, and that was our life and we were making extremely good money and just drinking all the time. So I think we went out like five nights a week, something like that to, you know, the different bars and, and whatnot when we weren't working. And after work, it was like, you know, the party all night. Um, and then I decided, well, enough with that. I was a, I was a runner, so I kind of traveled around quite a bit and ran for my emotions instead of dealing with it or coping with them. So I um, was moving to Japan with my friend um, to teach English as a second language when I got a call from the oil field. And they said, hey, why don't you come make some money um, for the drilling season and then you can go to Japan. And I thought, okay, well, let's just go do that. So my friend and I, we went up there and um, I never actually made it to Japan. I stayed in the oil field, um, but we worked, you know, shift work. So it was like either a 10 and four or two weeks on two weeks off. And so we wouldn't drink when we were there at work, but then when we were off, it's like, you're just saving it up. But now you have two weeks with all this money to blow and, and drink. So I eventually made it um, back to school into occupational health and safety. Um, and I moved back to Calgary. Well, I was always living here, I guess. But I moved corporate um, from Fort McMurray. And so I did that, which was, again, just a major <laughs> party, making lots of money and just spending it on going out, um, drinking. Um, I kind of just, yeah, lived a life of I traveled everywhere. You know, you had the nice car, you had, you know, the house and I wasn't under the bridge. So I, I never recognized it as a problem. And realistically, I didn't know anybody that was sober, right? I, I I knew nobody that was sober. 
Um, and all my friends drank like I did. And so I didn't really think it was a problem. I didn't, um, I didn't put two and two together for a very long time. Um, and then I met my ex, now ex-husband. Um, we, we moved to Australia again. I didn't think alcoholism, you know, change of place. It's not going to find me there. Um, so we moved there and then from there to Texas and, um, I was waiting on visa stuff, which gave me the opportunity to drink wine during the day by the pool. And I became this big wino and then decided I wanted a divorce. So I moved back to Canada um, to get a divorce. And then that's when my alcoholism just really progressed. Um, I was going through a divorce and my best friend and kind of first love had passed away and I didn't grieve any of it <laughs> right it was just me and my bottle so I decided hey you know what it's no it's everybody else's problem I'm gonna move to Mexico so I moved to Cabo San Lucas um for four years and um I met a person there who, how I felt about myself. So I hated myself and I met my match, which then pushed me into this um, severe spiral. Um, and, but again, I was still functioning, you know, like I moved down there and I was doing uh, real estate and vacation sales and I was, you know, hitting out of the ballpark. So like life is still good. I was still making great money. I, you know, had a house, very nice house there. Um, everything was fine. Um, so I thought, and then I just kind of hit a wall and I said, I have to go back to Canada. So I moved back to Calgary and I was devastated when I moved back. I was in devastation uh, that, you know, that should have been my bottom. And I went through some major financial problems. Again, not connecting it to alcoholism or anything um, of that sort or healing. Um, so I went through that and I still continued to drink. That was not the problem. I st still had some ethanol left in the tank to go. And I... It brought me to COVID, the beginning of COVID, and it stopped me straight in my tracks. It just, I had to look at myself. I couldn't run anywhere anymore. I couldn't get on a plane. I couldn't go anywhere. And I had to take a look at myself and the person I was looking at, I hated. So... Anyway, my bottom shouldn't have been my bottom. I just went out for, you know, a liquid lunch that day with a girlfriend and I went, you know, a few blocks over for a barbecue after and I drove home. And when I woke up that morning, I was so sick of myself that I just, I had to do something. And I logged in because there was an in-person meetings that morning um, to a Zoom a meeting and I said to myself I'm only going to give myself two weeks and if I don't feel better that's it I'm going back to drinking <laughs> so I gave myself those two weeks and 
when I woke up two Sundays following uh, when I went to that meeting, I went every day. I went to A every day and I gave it a fair shot. I did feel different <laughs> that morning. Not major. Like I know when I expected this major, like, you know, unicorns are coming down from the sky and everything's beautiful and glorious and it really doesn't look like that. But I felt a bit better. I felt different on two weeks um, from when I quit. And I felt at least better about myself because I didn't have anything to worry about that morning. I didn't feel, you know, severely um, anxious. I didn't have to think about what I did the night before. I didn't have to think about any of those things. I just felt like, oh, this is what this feels like. Like, I just have to get up, you know? <laughs> and, you know, that was a different feeling for me because I had tried to quit in the past, but I, you know, I, I never could do it on my own. And, you know, the most I, I, the most I quit previously was 21 days. And, um, but then I was having like, um, like dreams about like, you know, like, just fantasizing about drinks and um my mother had this you know COVID backyard barbecue and I couldn't wait to get there because I could have a Prosecco and just really weird things like here's the obsession right <laughs> so um Anyway, but now, so I continued on going to AA. They eventually turned into in-person and I really needed that community. I needed to know there are other people out there that were like me, right? I really needed that and I needed to understand it as well. That's, <clears throat> again, you're basically telling our story with OCJ and that's exactly kind of how we came together. Um, it was the October, 2020 is kind of when we got our shit together and we all just sat down and had a conversation. We're like, man, you know, if, if only we could tell our stories to other people and maybe they could hear them. And that's kind of what gave birth to this podcast. Cause you know, I've been in, I've been in a very, you know, I qualify for every fucking 12 step thing that there could be. I'm just, I'm, I'm an addict in every sense of the word, right. Whether it's booze, drugs, women, camp, whatever, all of it. Right. I'm, there isn't enough of anything to make me happy. Well, I didn't think so at the time, but, um, so, you know, all the people that I've ever crossed paths with, it was, it was an overwhelming sense, just like with you ladies that, uh, you know, I'm different. I'm unique. I, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily fit the mold <clears throat> that I think I should to be that. And so that was one of my arguments that I had, excuse me, <clears throat> not so much arguments, but one of the points that I wanted to make early in OCJ was I never would have sought AA because I didn't recognize that I was an alcoholic because of my superficial, you know, anybody looking at my life, like I had a nice house on the golf course. Like I wasn't the guy that, you, you know, I'm, I'm sure your husband probably dealt with this. Um, Jamie, you know, when, when I, you know, I say came out, but when I was like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And I, when I started saying that people are like, fuck man, no, you're not. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm pretty sure I am. Right. And, uh, family members, had a very hard time accepting it because to them, uh, he wasn't mean. 
he wasn't like a mean drunk. So that, that should have, you know, I guess alcoholism only comes in one form and that's mean in their mind. Um, he wasn't, he hadn't lost everything. All of his friends drank that much. I mean, that was by design, but you don't see that when you're clouded judgment, it takes over. Like, yeah, of course all your friends drink as much because that's what, that's who you chose people that want to drink with you. Like, but the acceptance piece for a lot of people was so hard. And I remember the very first wedding we went to and one of his best friends said to both of us, I was pregnant. So naturally nobody wants you to drink, but he had no excuse other than he was an alcoholic in their mind, um, which was pathetic excuse. And they said, his best friend said to him, you were a lot more fun when you drank. And I was like, (laughs) fuck you like what he's like six months sober can you give the guy a break like but that's that's the sense is that i feel like our society is so accepting of addiction that when you don't take part when you don't drink especially alcohol they are so accepting of alcohol that if you don't drink that you're different like you're the problem something's a matter with you because you're not choosing to drink when really it should be the other way around it's like you know nobody's like what do you mean you don't do heroin that's silly yeah everyone heroin like but with alcoholism or alcohol it people fully believe that everybody should drink you know like society has groomed us so well that it's everywhere and it's interesting because you know it's it's one of those things that you know, I, I can't really say that if every, you know, I don't know the statistics on heroin abuse as in, as I do with alcohol, whereas, you know, out of the hundred percent of the population that drinks, and I know a hundred percent doesn't, but like, let's take a hundred people, 12% approximately will have an adverse reaction to alcohol in the sense that if an alcoholic will, so that's only like 12%, you know, I can't say the same statistic about heroin. I, I've, I've dabbled in some stuff. And, uh, it, it, I don't know anybody that can like recreationally use heroin if they can like fuck cool, you're a unicorn. But (laughs) when it's, when it comes to alcohol, it's like, you know, with it being such a small population, it it is and it isn't right. I mean, it's a small percentage, but it's a huge number, but, um, for people that can't manage it it's 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 really hard to convince people it can and like i tell people you know we just presented at a at a major oil company here about a week ago when we were talking at one of their safety stand downs and i'm like listen if 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 you're the guy that can go out and crush a dozen beer on saturday at your buddy's barbecue and not drive home not try to find a hooker not try to punch your neighbor in the face like good for you right i'm not talking to you you're like you're you lucky bastard like i'm I, good for you that you can drink and not have an adverse reaction to it i'm talking to the guy that drinks the case of beer punches somebody out drives home then drinks a mickey by himself then wakes up in the morning looking in the mirror going i fucking hate you and i want to blow your head off that's the guy i'm talking to right so i think that's the difference um between like you know heroin for example is but it's still remarkable i remember when i first quit how many and i mean even to this day it still comes up when people are like, you still doing that sober thing? I'm like, well, well, if I'm standing in front of you and I'm not dead, you can pretty much assume that I'm still doing the sober thing. Cause I, I know it's going to kill me. My next run's going to kill me. Cause you know, once I get to that point, it's just going to be like, fuck it. I'm going and I'm going till the wheels come off. But even with those interactions that I have, I still got people going, man, you remember all the good times? 
And like I do, there was some fun. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say there wasn't, you know, I was, I lived a pretty privileged life and, and there was a lot of good memories that came out of it, but it wasn't worth the downs. It wasn't worth, you know, those Sunday mornings waking up going like, what the fuck? And not even knowing what I did last night, but knowing I hated myself or whatever I did do. It's, it's, unless you've been there, which, you know, I can see, you know, you're nodding. It's like, yeah, you've been there. I, I get it. Yeah. Um, but how many people are still like, dude, when, when you do decide to relapse, give me a call. Cause I want to be a part of that. Cause that's going to be fun. And I'm like, do you want to hear something crazy? When I first found out that Ray had relapsed, my husband had relapsed the very first time I had a little tinge of like, why didn't you do it with me? Yeah. Like we used to have so much fun when we drank together. We used to have, we, like I said, he wasn't an angry drunk. He was a very social, happy, fun drunk. And I had that, like little tinge of jealousy. Like, why didn't you pick me? We could have had a good time. And I, and I look, look at that and I'm like, that is the, that you can tell that I was sick in those moments because it's like, when that happened, did you forget about like the, the like sleepless nights? Did you forget about worrying if he was going to kill somebody on his drive home? Have you completely like forgotten all of the horrible things that alcohol has brought to your life because you wanted to have like one night of fun with him? But I totally understand that. Like, I, I think that that's a natural feeling for a lot of people and admitting that you did have a good time. Like, I feel like there's a little bit of this, like, once you get into recovery, you become, some people do, not all, but this, like, holier than bow. Like, I, I would never drink again and I don't do that. But can we all just admit that, like, it, it was fun in its moments and it was horrible in its moments and let's just accept it for what it was. We don't have to pretend that it was all bad if there was some good in it too. Like we don't have to get on our like soapbox and be like, you know, it's all bad. And the world came crashing down on me, which is true for a lot of people, but guess what else we can accept that our past might've brought in other good things too. Maybe it built relationships that are still standing. Maybe your best friend that you used to drink with is the reason you don't drink today. You know, there's all of this stuff and we don't, we don't always need to just, talk about the bad in my opinion there was there was some good and i never want to go back there but i have learned to accept that it is what it is and it's funny because those and, and i think that's kind of part of the poison of the illness is it's it's easy to remember the fun it's not like it's it's amazing to me how quickly the shitty memories fade away and it's like you know if if i look back on my drinking career you know, if you, if you said, tell me the 10 biggest drunks you've ever been on, it's 10 good times. You know, mm -hmm. it's, I'm not telling you about like the arrests that like all, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's amazing how this disease has a way of helping you forget this shit and just focus on, on what was fun. At least for me, I don't know if that's everybody's prerogative, yeah, and you but know what? I think that's the power of the disease because maybe for, from the addict's perspective, you focus on the fun. From my perspective of it, I immediately think of all of the negative things that it brought to me. Like I can so easily get sucked into that resentment and anger and sadness. Like, see, you're fucking doing it again. Like, even if he's not drinking, just those behaviors that he exuded. Like if my husband wants to have, like have a day and lay on the couch and watch golf, I immediately am like, 
oh, this, this is a trigger for me because this is exactly how you behaved when you were hungover. So for me, it's crazy because I go to the negative. I don't think about the, very rarely do I think about the fun times. I almost always think about the garbage it brought. Yeah, I think it comes down to just reflecting back on how, like for me, how I felt about myself. Like you could give me a million dollars today and a $10 million today and say, Lauren, you could have this if you have a drink and just how much I was suffering in silence. I would never take that drink. It just, I know, you know, they say in AA, you know, just when you think you got it, you don't, I don't care what anybody says. (laughs) I know I have it because I cut off that power source and I'm not feeding it any power anymore and it's not controlling my life, but it did have the most significant hold over my life. And you only have one life, but there's no living. Like you can give me all the money in the world, all the material things, right? If I am going to feel like that again, like feel that internal hatred for myself and want to just treat myself like a piece of actual shit. Like that, that doesn't look appealing in the slightest to me. You know what I'm saying? It's just that stupid, insignificant bottle created havoc internally for me right so I think in my recovery I focused most on acceptance like that was my first thing and I would not move on to any other step (laughs) until I got the first one down and meaning like I felt it like no like you know what I'm saying I'm not moving anywhere I'm not gonna race through this this is, I've taken a lot of years to get me to this point. And I spent a lot of time controlling my alcohol. You know, it's even just going to events, getting up and like, you know, I'd be dancing on the bar one night and like in a suit at the board table the next morning and, you know, pretending to be this whole other person that I actually didn't know at all. Like this whole two years I've spent just getting to know myself again. Like, People are like, are you dating? I'm like, dating? I can't have anybody else on my right now, you know? So I think it's just, it's, and it, and it comes with all those other addictions. I was trying to fill my cup with everything, like shopping, traveling, anything that would give me that like instant gratification, right? Alcohol, whatever it was, sex, like, you know, you name it. I was trying to fill my cup in any way I could without looking to like the problem and how much I was numbing and actually not feeling like I just, you know, like even when I was going through divorce, like, nope, this is good. I'm good. You know, see you later. My friend passed away. I was like, there's nothing I can do. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with these emotions or feelings. I'm just going to move to Mexico because that is going to, this is the solution. You know, I got this in the bag and this is the solution. So And then the longer we drink, we create more trauma, more trauma, and you have more reasons to drink for, right? Or or not. So I think, yeah, for me, I just, whether I had a great life, like I had an amazing life. I can't, I can't 
saying that there was like horrible, horrible things in my life. There was, there was horrible, how I felt about myself internally, what I was going through, but my experiences were not horrible. And so I think, yeah, it's just coming back to that acceptance piece is, you know what? So what? I can't drink. <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, I've often thought, well, and, and being questioned, right? It's, you know, we, inside this studio, we've started calling them normies, right? Those people that can just drink and without the consequences and people that don't understand the feelings behind drink, right? And it's like, well, if you, if you could see how I felt, you'd never ask me why I drink. It's the only way I could shut those feelings off. And, uh, it's interesting cause you know, now I'm, I'm cheers and, uh, it's like after six years, I got people that are like, you think you could? And I'm like, well, like, do you, do you think you got this thing beat? And I'm like, you know what? Honestly, maybe like, maybe I could drink responsibly. Is that at all worth the risk? Nope. No fucking way, right? Like, you know, for for all you know, for all the good time for for what I gained, it was not worth literally waking up in the morning and just staring in the mirror, going, "I fucking hate you," right? And and there's uh, there's not a party that I can remember, you know. And like I said, you know, you look back, it's easy to remember the good times, but it doesn't. I can still feel the bad times, like even. Even if I do something slightly nefarious now in sobriety, I get this knot in my stomach and this swell of anxiety and guilt. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And like, I can't stand seconds of that. I don't, I can't imagine going back to just living in that state. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh. It's it's just that feeling like, and I guess, I, I guess you have to experience it to know that it's just I remember that feeling so well. Yeah. I don't think I'll ever forget. You know, and, and that just it. I think if you could if you could bottle that feeling and give somebody a shot of that and tell them the only way that they're gonna be able to get rid of that is to drink more, they would never ask why you have a drinking problem. They would never offer you a drink after that. They would understand. Right. And, uh, it's even my wife, right. To this day, when I first got sober, um, it was a result of just wreckage, right. It was like the house of cards came down. All the truths came out. It was just a, an absolute massacre of the illusion I'd built. Right. And, uh, and I remember being desperate for her to understand alcoholism i guess like that it wasn't really me that was doing all these things it was this character that i became when i did this thing that i was doing almost against my will at the end so desperate for her to under be able to understand and so then maybe she wouldn't resent or hate me as much right but uh and i remember talking to one an old timer in one of the rooms and he goes you know the only way she would ever understand that is if she was one of us and that's nothing you should wish on anybody. No. <laughs> a little bit of a light bulb moment, right? And just an acceptance thing going, she's not going to understand and I can't make her understand. And no, no words can, you know, you, you can sit f- 10 people in a room that have 
you know, Laura and me, you know, all these people that have burnt their lives to the ground, not necessarily necess- um, like on the surface, but like internally. Right. And uh, try to get them to explain it bad enough to, for people to understand. We just couldn't, you know, words can't do that feeling justice. No, no. I, and it's the hardest thing to explain. I think to anybody. Yeah. Like you said, like, or for, you know, I guess, they call them normies. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about all, all these labels. I just think it's alcohol. It's, you know, poison. I don't know. I don't think it's healthy for anyone, but that's just me. Um, but yeah, like I just don't, the way I felt about myself to today and it's, you know, it's having the patience, I, I think in the process to, get there also like I know like like I said I only gave it two weeks like really like you're not seeing a huge significant difference I was super grateful at two weeks I did feel like that little bit different but I think for you know anyone out there who's like in new like is thinking about it or is in that gap or just started recovery it's you know having patience for yourself and for the healing process to take place because just when you think it's over it's not <laughs> like you know and it's that's those small miracles it's not the unicorns and you know everything dancing around in the clouds <laughs> and whatnot it's a lot of work and it's a lot of patience um, with yourself and but then just when you're kind of like, you know, like, is this right? There is this small miracle that happens. And just to kind of enforce that you're on the right path. But I think you have to have, you know, everybody nowadays just wants immediate results, like in anything, right? Um, but you you spent a lot of time getting to where you are. are. And um in recovery and I think just letting people know like take the time to recover you know for yourself like that patience piece I had to really work on my patience because I was not a patient person that was like just not a virtue of mine so I wanted everything immediate and I thought you know I was you know like my first AA meeting I walked in I, I looked at the steps and I was like this is going to be a breeze. I got those, <laughs> you know, just everything like that. I just wanted to, you know, just be done with it, close the book and move forward. But it's just, you know, even just when I think I'm, you know, at my peak of the, the healthiest I could be, it just, you know, two years later, like I'm seeing changes for the better still, you know what I'm saying? Like that healing and um, the recovery just like never stops. So, I think, yeah, just um, have patience and, and don't rush it, you know, take all the time you need to, to recover properly. <clears throat> and this might be something more for Jamie, but I remember when I first got into the programs, um, people were telling me like, you need to put yourself first, you know, kind of like what you're alluding to. And I was so caught up in the damage that I did to my family. I'm like, no, no, no. I got to take care of my family. I got to make sure that my wife and my kids and like, I got to do this for everybody else. And they're like, no, you need to do this for you. 
<clears throat> and at the time I thought it was like really selfish of them to tell me that I need to put me first. And I'm mm-hmm. like, this is bizarre. Like, no, I've got three boys at home and a wife. Well, maybe a wife. Like it was <laughs> touch and go. There <laughs> for, for, uh, yeah. For, for a, a bit is putting it mildly. Um, but you know, I was so focused on trying to, cause I, I just had so much guilt about what I'd done to them that I was really trying to figure out a solution for them. And in my story, that solution was to eliminate myself. I was completely suicidal. That was myself from your life. Um, and that that's that's where my solution was before I found the rooms of that's, different twelve step meetings. But it was really hard for me to like listen to these guys and take them serious when they're like, "No, you got to put yourself first. And I'm like, "Fuck no!" Like you just told me I was a selfish asshole, and now you're telling me I got to put myself first. Like how how do those two things equate? And uh, at the end of the day, you know, back on well, obviously, if if I'm not the best me, I can't be anything for them. No. Yeah. But it takes a while to figure that out, you know, like that you can only control you. It only comes back to you. Uh, the accountability is with you. So, um, but yeah, that's a hard thing to, I, th- I think, to realize, you know, um, it's, well, no, I'm going to do it so I can get my boyfriend back or, you know, um, this or for my, you know, my kids and, and whatnot. But it, it is, if you're not right, nothing's going to be right. Well, and I think that um, similar to me going to Al-Anon wanting to change my husband, like I wanted to know the secret on how to keep him sober. I think a lot of people that have addiction go into recovery for somebody else. They're going to find out the secret to put their life back together. And all the, all programs, all recovery programs are a little bit selfish, a lot selfish. And a lot for me, when, when my husband went away, I was so resentful. I was like, yeah, how dare you leave me with three little kids, go work on yourself. Like, yeah, no, I got it. I'll hold down the fort. Um, I've been doing it this, this long. And, you know, so the resentment just even built when he was in a treatment facility. Like I, I wanted him to get sober, but I was also pissed that he was getting sober because it felt so unfair to me, but that's, that's the disease. Like, and that's, it it is a family disease so much of my life has been consumed with just these negative feelings, this feeling, the feelings of despair and anger. Like, I can't tell you how much anger and defeat I felt, especially in the early moments, like just defeated, like completely defeated, very similar to what you guys are describing, even though I'm not an addict. And so the parallels between the addict and the loved one are so similar, yet so different that it now makes sense that of course the family members need recovery too. But in those moments, I couldn't see that. Yeah. And even moving forward, like, you know, I've got like I said, I, I'm, I'm clean and sober now, just coming up six years and my oldest kid's turning 18 here in a couple of weeks and I've got three boys. So like eight, basically 18, 15, 13. And I get to look back on, you know, similar to Jamie's story. Well, I guess both of you a bit like, uh, you know, I throw, I made drinking look really fun to them. You know, there was lots of big social catered dinner party you know it was nothing for me to have a hundred people in an open bar at a barbecue at least once a month in my house back in the day right it was a very social event it was fun it was you know i'd have 
bands playing in my backyard. Like, you know, it was, it was fun. And now I look at it and I'm like, you know, I glorified that life to my kids and in a time that they were very influential. But then much like Jamie was talking about standing on a soapbox, I still recognize that my boy is an 18 year old boy and he's going to, he's going to do what he's going to do. And I don't want to, I don't want to diminish his life journey by going, don't, you know, I, I I'm just going to give him lectures and don't do this and don't do that. And, you know, he's, he's still a kid that's going to be a kid and like, fuck, he's got my genetics. He's going to do some stupid shit. Mm-hmm. And just, I think now it's like, okay, you know, I, I've did, I did so much to glorify it. I'm trying very consciously to like have very vocal discussions about recovery and my kids know what I do and they know that I help support people and we'll be sitting having dinner and I'll get a phone call and I'm like, I got to go because somebody needs help and they get it. And, and so I try to re- just so that they know one, um, if it ever does turn into a problem for them, I get it and I'm there for them and I won't judge them. Right. And two, just to like, you know, there are consequences and I'm not going to sit, you know, I'm not going to lecture my kids about, you know, especially my 18 year old. He just went through grad and he was out all grad week every night getting shit faced. And I'm like, you know, that's part of the experience for him anyway, in his mind, that's graduating. So cool. I'm not going to stifle that for you. Just know if, and when the wheels come off, I'm here for you, kid. Not just you. One of the coolest moments that I've had in recovery actually was one of my kids, my oldest boy got a hold of me and he's like dad i think one of my friends is struggling can can he give you a call and like that made that was transformative for me that was like it, it's finally come full circle like i've i've you know not that i'm ever going to mitigate all of the damage that i did but it was like that was really vindicating for me to have my kid recognize where i was what i did and where i am now and be able to go like my dad can help my friend who's got some struggles and, yeah. and, and be, and be cool enough to be like, Hey, you know, can you help my buddy? Cause like, I don't think I would have done that at 18 years old. Right. Or, or been comfortable enough to have that discussion with my parents. Yeah, it's cool. Like, um, I guess the, the follower follower that I'm most proud of is, you know, my 15 year old nephew and, you know, here's a, you know, athletic kid that was kind of, you know, he was kind of, I think dabbling and know vaping or drinking or whatever and I didn't know he was listening but I kind of had a feeling because he would kind of repeat some things back to me just casually but I was there two days ago and it was the last day of school and I was like Haley what are you doing are you gonna go oh sorry I said his name (laughs) um are you gonna go out to is there an after school party you know what I'm saying school is out like that's what we did you know you go to the bush party or a party and he's like I'm going to work out and I'm like you are <laughs> he's like yeah I'm like what there's no parties and he's like who cares auntie <laughs> and I was like you are so cool <laughs> <laughs> you know? and but you know he has been listening and I think you know, it's maybe changed his perspective a little bit. So it, it is being about like being open and these things do happen to normal, you know, people um, that aren't living under the bridge. And, you know, you have to think about it. You know, when I first went into 
you know, the rooms, I would be like, I don't relate to these people. I, I don't know who they are, but I just wasn't there yet. You know, like it's progressive. You don't just wake up and, and you know, you're homeless. The guy under the bridge didn't get there because, you know what I'm saying? It took him a while to get there, I'm assuming. And, you know, those things. So even if it didn't relate, it doesn't relate to you now, it just maybe is not yet, you know, not yet. That didn't happen to you yet because, you know, I didn't start off as this huge drinker my alcoholism progressed and I only drank wine, you know, so um, it can happen to the, it happens to the rest of us, you know, it, it really does. And I think for the youth, you know, changing that perspective that, you know, this can happen and the perception of, you know, like alcohol is good. It's just normal. Like, no, it's not, <laughs> you know? So um I think, yeah, focusing on the, you know, the younger kids. And that's great that, you know, your child thought of you to go and help another, you know, friend. That's amazing. So it is amazing. And one thing I want to add is that when I started going into the rooms, um, part of my denial was that I like to pick out how I was different than everybody else. I like to justify in my mind how I didn't. I didn't belong to this group because that that was good for my ego and it was good for my denial. It, it meant that I was different than them. Um, they all had these like, you know, problems and I didn't have them because I was living under the facade. Like I was living in illusion. And as long as I could keep up with the Joneses, then nobody would know that my life is actually crumbling on the inside. Um, but the beauty is in actually finding the similarities in your story. Like, and the beautiful, the recovery actually happens when somebody who has nothing, you know, you feel like has nothing in common with you, has everything in common with you. That's where you learn. That's where yeah. you grow. But I think <clears throat> for our youth, because I'm a mom of three, I'm always worried about what the future holds for my kids. I mean, I come from a long genetic history of addiction. My husband's an addict. Like, you know, I think that there's a pretty good chance that... It, it may be an issue for some of my kids moving forward, but I think the greatest gift we can give to the youth of tomorrow is that we are open about it because they're going to have those same denials. They're going to say that person's different than me. That person's old, that person's, you know, whatever it seems. And to me, everyone that went to a meeting was like these churchgoers and they were really in touch with God. And that made me super uncomfortable. Like I didn't want to sit down with my, you know, preschool teacher or, or, you know, like Sunday school teacher. I didn't want somebody who wore their like fancy church clothes to, to a meeting. I wanted somebody relatable and I wanted somebody with tattoos and somebody who seemed like somebody I could hang out with on the weekend. I wanted that person to be in those rooms. And I think the greatest gift we can give our youth is be that person, be the exactly who you are and don't hide the fact that you're in recovery because there's somebody out there that's going to be attracted to you somebody out there that needs to hear your message and, and just be open to it. Right. Like we don't all have to come with this, this illusion that we're perfect in order to share our story and to help other people. Like I think there's so much beauty in the chaos and the craziness and the imperfection of life. And right. I, I think it's and really I wish more people spoke up. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I think it's really cool that we kind of get to that because we are getting to kind of the end here. Um, and one of one of my big fears with, you know, youth moving forward is social media. Like, thank God 
when I grew up, we didn't have smartphones that could take pictures and videos of shit. Cause like I'd probably be in jail and, <laughs> or like at least have way more humility than I did. Cause man, did I do some stupid shit? But, um, you know, I think especially with social media right now, and, and it's not just youth. I think it's everybody is, you know, we, we forget that nine times the highlight reel that's not, it's bullshit, right? Like, you know, the, the images, the, the storylines, it's, it's bullshit. No, like there's very few people that get on there and be like, I'm having a fuck day and I'm struggling and you know, here's what's going wrong. And there's almost like two, two spectrums, right? There's like the people that won't say it at all. And then the other end, it's like people that just dwell in that. And it's, it, it's, um, uh, it, it's just, re, it, I can't even imagine what it's like being a kid growing up in, in that because you're either, it's either complete bullshit or it's you're labeled as an attention seeker. And, and it's like, you know, you, you want your kids to be vulnerable and honest, but if you do, then you get shit on for it. And, and, and that's what I think is interesting about, you know, what OCJ is trying to do. And that uh, brings me to how I found you guys on your social media with the other side on Instagram. Um, so maybe just kind of as a wrap up, you guys can talk about that real quick, what you're doing, what you're hoping to do, how it kind of came about. James, do you want to go or? Sure. Um, so how it kind of came about is that we were, uh, we know each other, Lauren and I, um, through my husband and through Lauren's sister. And I have always been really passionate about wanting to help people. I, and I just really struggled to figure out what that looked like. I was just like, you know, people need to hear this message and I just don't know how to deliver it. And I was also full of fear. Like, oh man, the judgment that I was so, so scared of. Now I look back, I'm like, who cares? But that was, it literally paralyzed me. And one day Lauren called me and she's like, listen, I know what you're, what you want to do. And I think that we should collaborate and work together on this. And so it's in its infancy, the other side, you can find us at um, the other side, one dot one on Instagram, but we're just trying to normalize the conversation around alcoholism, addiction, family members of addiction, um, because we think it's really important. We think it's important that people hear it and that they hear the message a lot of times because science shows that you got to hear it a lot of times before it sticks. And like I said, everybody is not drawn to everybody. So maybe there's somebody out there that needs to hear me tell my story. And maybe there's somebody out there that needs to hear Lauren tell her story or you tell your story. Um, but I think if we don't start sharing our stories, those people aren't going to have somebody to turn to. They're not going to have that person that they can turn to and say, I'm really struggling. And your story sounds so much like my story. Can you help me? So that was the whole idea behind it is that we really just wanted to help people and um, where it's going to go. We're not a hundred percent sure, but we're really excited about this. Lauren, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think um, so. When I was at like six months sober or something like that, I just posted a short video and it was the first time I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. I'm just going to let everybody know, like, this is who I am. And because I, you know, like I was posting all the beautiful photos and me traveling the world and people probably thought my life was exceptional, <laughs> you know, but that really wasn't what was going on. So I posted this short video. It was at like Christmas time and I was six months sober and um, whatever people were like, woohoo, good, good job, whatever. And whatever. I forgot about it. 
But then about a year later, these messages started trickling in and people that I had known or not known, but they had just been on my Facebook, started counting, coming to me and saying, hey, because of your video, like I'm a year sober or, you know, I'm a year and a half sober. It was, it was generally at milestones right, that they would kind of reach out and let me know. I thought, this is great. Like, this is amazing. But, and then I started to think about it. It's, I think everybody should speak out. Like I, I, I think there isn't, you know, a group or a person that shouldn't speak out about it because I wish I had somebody, you know, that I looked to or that I came across a video or something or a podcast. They didn't have podcasts like them, but <laughs> you know, like I wish I had, or maybe paid attention to it or, something something that inspired me to kind of close that gap because I knew there was something wrong but I just couldn't pin it and I think that um the more you know we share our stories the more you're going to relate with someone right and you're going to silently inspire somebody um so yeah that's how we came together and then Jamie you know like we were both sitting in fear for a while and we collaborated together and we're terrible at social media and everything techie but we're trying to f figure it out <laughs> so um that's kind of where we're at but yeah come visit us at um the other side at uh, 1.1 and uh yeah cool so well, you've just shared your message with anywhere between 10 and 30,000 listeners. So um, thanks for that. <laughs> Thank you. I, Thank you for having us. It's yeah. such a on this podcast. Yeah, for I, sure. I, I do think that it's a really unique perspective because we don't have many people that can come on. Like, I think you guys are a pretty unique team because one, I know from a lot of women that I've talked to how intimidating the recovery process can be, whether as the spouse or as the, as the person suffering, um, you know, walking into rooms, I've, we've had a lot of women reach out and, you know, I've got to go meet them and kind of build some trust. And then I, I tend to walk into their first meeting with them. Um, right. and it's, it's, there's a lot of fear amongst women, um, about the judgment and, and well, I can't even begin to understand. I don't know. I'm, I, you know, but there, for, for whatever reasons there are, there's uh, it's, it's not the friendliest of environments. And I can recognize that even in, in a lot of the 12 step rooms that I go to, I'm like this, it's typically male dominated rooms. Um, and yeah, it's, it, I, I can see how it would be intimidating. So I think it's very important, you know, with, with Lauren and you and um, just being that voice, and and Jamie on your side, you know, like I said, at least half, if not more than half, of the people that we get reaching out um, are are that significant other or the spouse or or something trying to figure out how to support those individuals. And really short of me going, I'm I'm not sure because I'm not that person. Um, you know, well, and I think I think there's a lot of resources for the addict, but there is not a lot of resources for the family members. I mean, there's Al-Anon, but there's not like a recovery center you can you can go to. I I where I live, anyways. I actively sought one out, and I couldn't find one. Yeah, and and like shitty enough when I got through, it was about two years. I was about two years clean and kind of went through some shit, which you know really tested me. Um, but I made it through. And I remember looking at my wife going, you know what you should do? <laughs> and it's terrible to say and terrible a joke about, but I'm like, I've put you through hell. 
you should probably just like go to work, pretend to have an alcohol problem so that you can go to a treatment center and just really kick your feet up for 28 days and, and, and try to get as much of the program as you can, even though we both know you don't need it just to try to absorb as much as you can and take a little break. So, um, yeah, I think that's interesting. It's a very good point of, of almost like a treatment center for the rest of the family. Well, and that's, that's kind of what sparked all of this is that, you know, I had so much deep seated resentment when my husband went, went away to treatment and I was like, where, where's my treatment? Where's my vacation from the laundry and the kids and all of the pain and suffering? When do I get to go learn how to deal with my feelings? And I, he said, go, like, I want you to have all that, but there was nowhere for me to go. And so the dream I've always had is that one day there is going to be that. And, and one day I'm going to, you know, make sure that there is something, a, a facility for women to forget all of their at home jo- jobs and duties and responsibilities where they can go and just focus on themselves and all of the, the feelings that they're feeling. And, um, so that's also part of it is that, you know, we've got these big dreams that we want to see come to fruition and we're kind of at the beginning stages and we don't know how we're going to get there, but we're just so happy for opportunities like this. And we're so grateful that you had us on today. So thank you. You guys are doing great things. So keep on kicking ass. (laughs) (laughs) One one of my board members, he's, uh, well, he does, he won't care. He's a superintendent for the school board down here. And uh, his first Zoom meeting, you know, when we started all this, it was all on Zoom and he's got this picture behind him and it just says, do epic shit. And that's kind of become our slogan is, you know, don't be afraid to do epic shit. So to you, to you two, I wish you that do some epic shit and congratulations and keep going. You guys as well. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Bye guys. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.